This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Well, it's my great pleasure to introduce distinguished Professor Emerita Ian Kaplan. She is the past and founding director of the Humanities Institute at Stony Brook University and past president of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. She is a scholar of trauma studies, feminist film theory, and gender studies, among, among other fields. We've been planning to discuss now Voyager for a few years now, um, but the pandemic and other unforeseen events led us to postpone till now. So it's a real treat that we, you know, you can believe that we've discussed this quite <laughs> a lot. Um, there are two broad um, areas of questions that I want to address and, and hope that Anne and I could discuss tonight. First, the long-standing scholarly interest in this film since, you know, released in 1942, but still very much and consistently of interest to scholars and historians. Um, and secondly, the status of now Voyager of a film of its time. Um, for instance, you know, how is now Voyager a war film? And, and what can we glean from its exploration of illness and trauma and mothering? So let me start with the first question. So... Released in 1942, now Voyager was made when the U.S. Was at, uh, was at war. Later the same year, and people in the audience will know, Paul Reed and Claude Rains, who played Jerry Dorians and Dr. Jack within this film, uh, were featured in Casablanca, which was rushed into release to take advantage of the publicity from the Allied invasion of North Africa a few weeks earlier. It had a world premiere in November of 42 and was released uh, nationally in early 1943. Now, so we have now Voyager a little bit earlier than Casablanca, same year. Um, but how would we, might we think of its status as a war film? There's no war present. It's not like Casablanca. What would you, how would you talk about this as a, fil- a war film or a right. film made during the war? Well, obviously, literally, it's not a war film in terms of soldiers and battles and so on. But on the other hand, it's made in a context where the American culture was extremely destabilized. The entry into the war, as you said, is just going on. And there's incredible uncertainty. And the destabilization, particularly of gender, with the women leaving home and going to work in the factories. Uh, And so we have in the film this old culture, this house that's like a museum rather than a house or a mausoleum, I nearly said. Um, and it's clearly on its last legs, and Lisa and June are b- already beginning to bring new ideas and to butt convention. So I see this as sort of the war context coming into the, 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 the way the film is set up in terms of the house and the Boston culture. But there's another very interesting sort of a link to the war, which is that Betty Davis... Um, Actually, I found an article written in September 1942 talking about Betty Davis hiring down to Joplin, Missouri Mm -hmm. to manage these incredible uh, crowds to promote war bonds. She was the only white member of Hattie McDonald's African-American war bond organization. She set up a Hollywood canteen for the service people, and she... uh, 
was in general very much involved in the war effort. But I thought that was very interesting. On the one hand, she's playing this role, right. and at the same time, really very much involved in the war context. Yeah. Well, let's shift a little bit to the novel on which this is based. And this is Olive, uh, Olive Higgins Prouty's novel written in 41. Um, and as we've discussed between us, the, the movie remains pretty faithful to its source. Very, very um, the novel is considered to be one of the first, if not the first, fictional depictions of psychotherapy on screen, um, which um, is depicted fairly realistically at the time as Prouty herself spent time in a sanitarium mm-hmm. following a mental breakdown in the 20s, 1925. What can you tell us about Prouty and the depiction of psychiatry in this mm-hmm. film? Well, first of all, you're right. It's an unusually early depiction of psychoanalysis, but it's not the first in right. terms of cinema in general. Uh, Secrets of the Soul, the Paps film in Germany, made in 1926, is a sort of little mini... I don't know how many people know the film, a little lesson of Freud's classical psychoanalytic theory. Mm-hmm. We have a very warm-looking therapist uh, talking with the hero of that film. But uh, when the, the uh, Hollywood got fixated on psychoanalysis between 45 and 50, the, uh, the representation was not of, of anything like in the now Voyager film, but was classic psychoanalysis with a therapist, patient, intense relationship, transference, counter-transference, making it very dramatic. Yeah. And, of course, film noir followed with those sorts of scenarios. So you think of The Snake Pit, mm-hmm. 1948, or uh, even better, Spellbound, mm-hmm. 1946, where you get... Because another stereotype of the psychoanalyst was to make him sort of seem to be a mini Freud. Mm-hmm. So with a little little German, heavy German accent and sort of, you know, a, a, a august presence... But this is quite different in, in now Voyager, and I think quite unique. And of course, here comes the role of Olive Prouty. Olive Prouty was a wealthy uh, woman, lucky to be living in Massachusetts, because at that time, in the early, well, turn of the century, and the wealthy people were wondering what to do about mental health in their communities and were donating money to set up private hospitals to service the wealthy mm-hmm. uh, people who, who needed it. One of these hospitals was called the McLean Hospital, founded in 1811. And McLean, I th- and it's, it's still going today, mm-hmm. another one in Stockbridge, uh, Massachusetts, was the Austin Riggs Center mm-hmm. for Psychoneurosis, um, which was, the, I believe, Cascade in the film is modeled on Austin Riggs, because all that I've written about it sounds exactly like Cascade, the theory now being that people should be removed from home, the home environment, should be living in nature, should be eating healthy food, should be making artworks and helping in the community, that healing was taking place more through the environment than through the classic therapist-patient relationship. So I think Olive, Olive Prouty herself must have gone to the Austin Riggs Center. But very interestingly, there's this link with Sylvia Plath, 
uh, later on, uh, who I think went to the McLean Hospital, at least first. But Olive Prouty had also gone to Smith College, and she was giving fellowships um, to students, to prospective students, and she made sure Sylvia Plath got one of these fellowships and helped get her into the better institution for her her mental, to to help her with her struggles. Hmm. Uh, Plath didn't return the compliment, by the way. Those of you who know the novel, she has a Philomena guinea in there who's modeled on Prouty, Hmm. and and Plath puts down this writer for being too popular, for, uh, you know, a sort of a high-culture snobbery. And I think, actually, Prouty may have fallen between stools because, on the one hand, she was not... popular, popular writer, but she wasn't a, quote, you know, canonical writer, and sort of got, got trapped between being judged on, from either side. Yeah. But she was a remarkable, prolific novelist. She, this novel is the third in five about the Vale family. Huh. Also, very recently, um, a whole omnibus has been published, which, which contains three of her novels, a big fat book this big. Um, so she's finally, and there's also a feminist press issue with, a, with an afterword by Judith Main, you know, feminist film theorist. Mm-hmm. So she's sort of coming into her own. I mean, it's not that she's been totally ignored, but I think there's a lot more to say about Olive Prouty. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, turning back to the film, let's talk a little bit about Dr. Jackwith and following up on the psychiatry theme. As a psychiatrist, he describes his work famously in this film (laughs) as helping people who don't know which way to go, uh, but putting up a signpost saying, not that way, but that way, um, as he explains to Mrs. Vale. And yet um, he also claims, you know, he doesn't put much faith in scientific terms um, but leaves that to fakers and writers of books. Um, so I, I don't think he was talking about Prouty. Um, but what do you make of this representation of psychiatry in the yeah. film? He's obviously not a Freudian figure, but what right, would you say? Right. Well, I think it's a very modern idea mm. of a therapist, actually. Uh, as I was reading and watching the film again, uh, thinking about relational therapy, which is now au courant, you know, in New York, particularly in New York City, uh, he's very practical. He uh, is very uh, self-assured, but but humble. Uh, he, I think, that opening sequence, the way he he handles himself and and uh, Betty Davis as this traumatized, terribly depressed young young woman, is excellent. You see him looking at everybody, his eyes darting. He looks concerned. He looks looks serious. Um, he makes the one slip, which actually makes him more human mm-hmm. to have, have noticed her cigarette butts in the, in the wastebasket when he's going to pick it up to, for one of, to wrap his little box in. Um, but he smooths that over, and um, I think it does brilliantly in facing Mrs. Vale and simply telling her she's ruined the daughter. Mm-hmm. It couldn't have done better to ru- ruin, you know, to have spoiled and hurt the child her, yeah. hurt him her completely. So I think in the novel, we learn a lot more about Jack With. There's an extended discussion of his New York office. Uh, the, the, uh, Charlotte is impressed with how 
un unfancy it is, how mm -hmm. simple it is, how even a little dowdy mm -hmm. it is, and um, showing he's not out for materialistic things, that he's, he's mainly concerned to help people. So he's made a very sympathetic and I think quite realistic. Mm -hmm. he, he, in fact, to get back to Secrets of the Soul, he reminds me of the, 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 the analyst in that film, although the technique there is classical Freudian, right. and Jackwith is absolutely uh, the opposite. Um, the the other, other wing of things that we should just bear in mind at the, at the time are the asylums, and the, uh, because the funding was for just... For, you know, they were very expensive to go to these hospitals and the, the private ones. Finally, in the 30s, they started to set up state institutions. And I think we all know what happened with those um, because they, money ran out and before you knew it, they, had, they were putting people who were homeless, people criminals, people who had mental issues, all in the same institution. And in fact, Mrs. Vale, I, I don't know if you caught it, she says, when Jackwood says I need, she needs to go away from home or to a sanitarium, she says, oh, I suppose it's one of those high wire, with high wire fences with yowling inmates. Right. So, I mean, there is that wing. That, so, you know, obviously, psychiatry and psychoanalysis and mental health was very d divided at the time and over across the different institutions, but... Uh, Olive Prouty was lucky to be where she was and to have the wealth to help her through her tragedy. The tragedy was she lost two, two children early in life, yeah. in their lives. And yeah. she finally had a breakdown in 1925 and went to, as I say, I'm pretty sure it was the Austin Reeds mm -hmm. Riggs Center. That's interesting. Well, you've written a lot, extensively, in fact, about motherhood and representation. <laughs> um, in an essay from the mid-1980s, for instance, you trace a history of maternal sacrifice in classical Hollywood film, um, but you say that it had all but exhausted itself when Now Voyager was released in 42. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, like, the Stella Dallas model has been superseded. How has your, your thinking changed or evolved on questions of mother-daughter relationships in this film? I mean, do you see now Voyager and, as initiating a kind of shift in that representation or at the end of a trend? Or The representation of motherhood in the film is very much linked to Philip Wiley's monstrous mother. Mrs. Vale is a monstrous mother absolutely dominating her daughter, traumatizing her daughter, bullying her, and really it's abuse, actually. Um, and I would say that's, that's an unusual representation. That's not, not usual. But very interestingly, right now, if you think about film like, well, Mommy Dearest was probably the latest for The Monstrous Mother, per se. But if you think of a film like The Lost Daughter, um, which also is shocking in terms of uh, a mother daring to leave her child. Um, but we see it from the point of view of the, of, of the heroine, the, of the daughter. Well, as you, 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 know, you and I have talked about various mother-daughter pairings in this film. Obviously, Mrs. Vale and Charlotte, Jerry's wife and Tina, 
Charlotte right. and Tina and so on. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, there's intergenerational trauma here around mothers and daughters, mm-hmm. however figured. Um, and one thing, I don't know, and maybe audience members will have something to say in our Q&A, but I, one thing that, that there's a couple cringeworthy moments yeah. in this film, and one for me is when, when um, Jerry comes to the Vale Mansion, which has now been utterly transformed, we'll talk about that in a minute, and, and, and Charlotte's coming down Tina's mid-stairway, yeah. and, you know, do you like me? Yeah. And he looks yeah. at Charlotte and says, I love you, and then... <laughs> The yeah, passing right, on of the right, name, right. and I use our special name, Camille. And right. there's this way that the, 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 the child, Tina, seems like this pawn or this yeah. figure be- yeah. between um, these two people who can't speak. And it seems, yeah. you know, she's being kind of manipulated. Okay, but of course we know that she's happier. She's, she's even become glamorized in yeah. the process. Um, the house is a place for her. But I wonder what yeah. you'd say about, like, intergenerational yes. trauma and its... Well, actually, thinking about intergenerational time, let me just go back to the pairings, because there are three pairings. One we don't really see, which is the Mm. Isabel-Tina one. And that's where it seems to me there's intergenerational trauma. Clearly, this Isabel, from what we can gather, is extremely narcissistic. She cannot attune to her daughter. She is jealous of the daughter because... uh, Lacking the mother, Tina turns to her father, and then Isabel gets jealous. So you wonder what happened to Isabel to right. pr- produce this this kind of, of effect in terms of Tina. Uh, you could say the same with Mrs. Vale, although she's so monstrous that the even the idea of um, making her some sort of a victim is is a problem. But again, you you see these patterns repeat itself. Over, over each of these couples. And the, the, the progressive mothering is, of course, Charlotte and, and Tina. And uh, that comes about because of Charlotte drawing on her own experiences as a, brought up by a victim um, of a monstrous mother. So she can use her psychological knowledge that she's got from Dr. Jackwith um, to help create this much, but the bonding with Tina. Now, that moment that you were mentioning is very awkward, and it feels as if they are exploiting Tina um, in their looking over each other and saying, you know, I love you. But I think the following sequences where... I I think it represents... um, Charlotte not yet having decided properly... Whether she, which she does want to sacrifice. She knows she's got to sacrifice either Tina or Jerry, you know, mothering or sexuality, you know. And uh, that look is when she's still undecided. By the end of the film, she's made up her mind. She's going to sacrifice um, uh, her, her, her sexuality for the pleasure and the the duty in a certain sense to help Tina Tina grow up so it's sort of she it becomes more it becomes more clear and less exploitative I think by the time you finish the yeah film. as I said it was just that one moment where you think 
Anyways, um, I wanted to, as I said at the beginning, this is a film, and there are a few of them in, in our field. There are a few films that get returned to again and again and again. And what struck me about Now Voyagers, obviously um, in the, the 70s and 80s, feminist theorists were very interested in this film. There's so much writing, whether from a historical point of view about consumer yes, culture yes. and Maria Laplace or a kind of close textual reading in Camera Obscura by Leah Jacobs, or, and more recently, Patty White, who mm-hmm. does a kind of queer reading of the film for the Criterion Collection. And on the other hand, we have like film philosophers, Stanley Cavell and yeah. others, who are also very interested in this film. But they're not interested in questions of mothering right. or gender right. or representation. They're interested in more the Walt Whitman aspect, the kind of voyage of self-discovery. Um, I wonder what you would say, why do you think this is a film that has sustained interest Mm -hmm. over so many Mm -hmm. decades by scholars? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's an interesting question. First of all, I think the themes of of mother-daughter relationships that we've been talking about, of sacrifice, of uh, questions of patriarchy and women's freedom or not freedom, uh, have always, since the Industrial Revolution and since bourgeois culture got, got started, have always interested audiences. And the, uh, the male establishment always rejects these films, calling them women, women's weepies. Um, but the audience knows what, what they like and what they want and what they can get from the, from the films they watch. I uh, just wanted to say uh, that, because I forgot to say it earlier, that what's very interesting... Um, is the way uh, that the, the romance narrative is sort of what is on the surface of these films, but the underneath there are these issues we, we refer to as belonging to the women's film, the looking from the point of view of how women are treated in culture and society and in the private um, domestic, domestic scene. So I think these themes are one thing that keeps a film like Now Voyager and their attractiveness to people, keep it going. Secondly, the, the strength of the performances. I mean, Betty Davis just amazes me what she's mm. able to do in this film. And she's on screen nearly the whole time. So uh, she has to change from the despecularized, dowdy, you know, medical gaze of the beginning of the film through to the re-specialization, mm-hmm. making her... Uh, object of the male gaze. I mean, it's a huge range of emotions she has to um, perform. And the other act we were talking about, Gladys Cooper, mm-hmm. is brilliant here. Plays she, Miss, she, Mrs. Vale, the mother. Yeah, yes, Mrs. Sorry, yeah, go from the actress to the to yeah. the role. Mrs. Vale, the mother. Uh, absolutely incredible how she makes her stony face and her cold, ice cold eyes. Um, and Jack with, I think, Reigns does a very good yeah. job, too. They all were nominated for an Oscar for this film, um, right. along with Max Steiner for his uh, wonderful score. Well, it's also the movement, the narrative movement, from illness to romance to motherhood to health. Right. And this, you know, even, you know, the butterfly motif and this whole idea of becoming and self-reliance right. and becoming right. oneself and... You know, right. I think I think that's the film philosopher's interest. Yes. Um, yeah. By the way, I think the Whitman. I think Prouty herself was very mm. clever in 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 a way in highlighting the 
the, the Walt Whitman poem, but I'm sure that that gave the film a sense of um, being, if not high art, being serious art. Right. So I think it gives it a sort of cachet. And I think the male philosophers chose to write so much about that film, partly again, because Walt Whitman's given it a signature, yeah. right? It's okay to study this film. <laughs> Walt Whitman is in it. Um, so, so <laughs> It's after higher things. Yes, yes, that's after good. All. That's very nice. Yes. It's after higher things. <laughs> okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the Vale Mansion, but it's a part of a larger thing that, you know, the film in the tradition of women's films and women's fiction, you know, features before and after, even with her feet, you know, coming down the stairways, yes, first the yeah. dowdy shoes and then yeah. the fashionable shoes. And so there's a lot of repetition in this way of before and after. Um, but one of the most striking things is how the Vale Mansion becomes yeah. a character yeah. in this film. Yeah. As it opens, it's raining, and it rains the whole time. It's a lot of rain. There's a lot of sadness yeah. around and coldness of the Vale Mansion. And at the end, of course, it's animated. There's a fire. We know she's lit the fire yes. earlier <laughs> on. Um, but right. they're you know roasting uh, weenies and, and uh, canapes and you know eating uh, on the floor, and it's this festive... So I wondered if you'd say more what you think about the setting and the Vale yeah, Mansion yeah. and the film's turn at this time. Again, wartime. It reminds me of Mildred Pierce, which is the, the yes. film is very different than the novel on which it's based. But this whole kind of turn and celebration of middle mm-hmm. classness, mm-hmm. a kind of middle class down to earth as a, a, apart from this. Right. So I wondered if you... Well, I, yeah, I think it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning that this the, the film with Charlotte's taking over the house, transforms it from the dying, outmoded, sort of semi-Victorian, stuffy kind of culture with the repression and, and uh, hostility and discipline and such things to something loose and joyful and, and productive. And uh, I thought you were going to... Uh, mentioned the the scene with Dr. Jackwith, which which is part of the... He's the one who first comments right. on the house. Right. And Sturdy, strong. strong proud yeah. of itself, standing <laughs> up there. But it's about to fall down, as it were. But, um, no, yes, it, it is... It is wonderful the way she opens it all up. Young people coming and going, dancing going on. You know, there's many, many rooms, so there's plenty of room for everybody to be enjoying. And uh, I think it it shows the journey of the film, Mm -hmm. you know, through the house. Well, and perhaps this is a a big topic, um, but I think there's something, even as feminist scholars have celebrated the film, and largely because of Charlotte and herself learning her self-reliance, independence, and that, you know, what most women want is a man of their own, a home of their own, and a child of their own. And she voices it in her inner monologue that this is something she knows she should want. But, you know, she turns down Elliot Livingston, ultimately, um, there's that fabulous scene where he's got his arm around her yeah. and he's patting her like... You know. When she says, take me somewhere, be gay, make love to me, his arm goes right out like that. Yeah, <laughs> right yeah. so I mean, but the, the, so the fantasy in the end, of course, she can have a home of her own and a child of her own and the fantasy of this relationship that she 
schools Jerry, who's out of character, starts acting patriarchal at the end instead of uh, indulging her in the way she sees this as a way to be with him and with mm-hmm. his child and to they both can raise her. But it, the premise is it, it, what pervades the film, more so than even something like Stella Dallas, it, there's so much sexual repression. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all based on you, what you can't have is sexuality. Yeah. yeah. Well, you can't particularly have sexuality and be a mother. I mean, th- this is where the film, th- this is an old stereotype of mothers uh, and sexuality. We know from the, from the history that motherhood in, in the United States was linked to the Christian discourse. And they had to have the, be pure, virginal, domestic, domesticity, submissiveness, um, uh, sitting in the role of the mother, to nothing else. Uh, the European discourse, starting with Rousseau, arguing that the mother should be provide education for the, the boy, of course, to become the model citizen, also was taken up in the United States. But these myths die so hard, and uh, the, the, an Olive Party herself seems to support, and this is where she's conservative, um, <laughs> having been very progressive in terms of mental health institutions. She's conservative in, in not seeming to see a problem because the film doesn't show any much problem of her giving up sexuality. That one moment actually with Elliot Livingston is the sexiest moment, you know, in the film where, and he's the unsexiest person possible, yeah. <laughs> the least sexiest person. So is where she actually, you get a feeling for, she, she seems to have a feeling for sexuality in yeah. that scene, but, but, but when the film comes, but, but it's like lost. It, the, she needed an excuse not to marry Livingston and found a good one, right. but then seems able to just drop the sexuality once Tina comes in the mode. So the mother, mother has to sort of transfer sexuality to mm. the bond with the child, it seems, in the myth yeah, that goes on. Mm. Yeah. Well, one critic has written of the film's ending that Charlotte and Jerry may have a child together to raise together, uh, but Charlotte and Dr. Jackwith, who are going over plans to add a wing to, the re- to his retreat, have a life together. Uh, what's your view? Yeah, I think that's that short sequence scene, really, where they're sitting cozily mm. together, going over the, uh, the maps, uh, it's, it's to, to base that whole argument on such a small evidence throughout all the other relations... I was watching particularly carefully, given I wanted to think about that question, mm-hmm. the film again. There, D- Jackwith is always totally, quote, proper, uh, mm-hmm. appropriate, uh, as not in many of the film noir films, the analysts are not, do not keep their distance necessarily. Um, so I think... Uh, Yes, we don't know how their lives will go on, and they do seem particularly close. But I see that scene more as really important for making the claim that uh, Charlotte will not only be just a mother, she will also be guiding the new wing for children in Cascade and going over, being a business partner, really. Of course, it's her money that's going to fund the, the wing to the Cascade, extension. Um, And I think we think about, let me just throw something else out. I think we think there must be some sort of sexual 
relationship with Jacqueth because it's so common in those film noir mm -hmm. from the 48 to 50, uh, where the analyst, often it's the woman analyst, as in Spellbound, who falls in love with the uh, therapist, or in uh, um, uh, The Snake Pit, where it's the woman who falls in love with the analyst, um, it, which is interesting, of course, the gender. Right. The, 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 the woman would be the one to be fragile enough to you know, fall in love with a therapist. But I think we think about it because that's such a common trope mm -hmm. across these films. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a, a, a final question. It's, it's, it's really big and unfair because it's a big question. <laughs> but you can take a small approach to it. Um, but can you say more about how you think views of, of mothering and representation mm -hmm. have changed over time? Mm -hmm. Uh, since this 1942 moment to our own time and what differences we're seeing or is, are, are, are really stuck in the same loop? Yeah. Well, let me just say, first of all, I would never write a book about white motherhood. And if it, again, you know, there are so many different kinds of mothers across ethnicities, nationalities, um, cultures. Um, it would take an army of scholars to really answer the question and really analyze what's going on with cross-motherhood. But sticking to the uh, white discourse, which does still dominate the, uh, the, the screens, um, although there are more counter, counter uh, more films showing other cultures and worries about mothering. Um, and I'm thinking of uh, ja Jacqueline Rose's book, a new book on motherhood. She calls it Motherhood, an Essay in Cruelty and Love. And she returns to the 70s um, uh, scholars and writers who were the first in, to, to try to break the myth about motherhood, uh, the idealized mother. I'm thinking of, of Jane Lazar, and I'm thinking of Dorothy Dinnerstein and mm -hmm. Sarah Ruddick, mm -hmm. and also my own work from, the, from that period. And it's now as if the, the wheel has turned again, and scholars are beginning to notice again that, that nobody can speak the truth about motherhood, which is why The Lost Daughter, you know, mm -hmm. is important, but also sort of shocking, because the, we, we hold the mother still as this, as Joe Rose puts it, that the mother has to, and so did Dorothy Dinnerstein, that the mother is, has to become the scapegoat, and she, she's responsible for humanity's failures. It's all because of the mother that, you know, uh, things are not going well, and so the mother has made the scapegoat. Uh, so, it, sticking to the white discourse still, there are a number of new themes, not new, new per se, but there's lesbian motherhood in The Kids Are All Right with right. Annette Bening. Uh, there's the um, uh, ladybird, the teenager mm -hmm. rebelling against her mother, uh, the kind of conflicts that go on through that. There's the buddies sort of scenario and the eternal daughter in a certain sense I put in, well, it's not quite the buddies, but the daughter so unwilling to leave her mother, so wanting to please her mother, so wanting to sort of cling, cling on to her um, uh, is, is another kind of newish uh, theme that's going on. Um, so, yes, uh, very complicated to... But study, I hear what you're saying, that what you would do differently than the work that yeah, you did. Yes, I would, I would immediately, you know, 
I think it's lucky in the book I did discuss the two versions of imitation of life and I think that's a good example of how race impacts relationships, how, how it's completely different conflict. Both the white mother and daughter have conflicts and the African-American mother and daughter, but the nature of the conflict is so determined by the racial right. context and right. the racial situation in a racist nation. Right. The mother responds one way, the daughter responds another way, but it's all around how they perceive their possibilities given the culture that they live in. So that's the kind of thing I would want to mm. tease out in a few, any future yeah. work. I, Okay, well, thank you very much, Anne, for having this conversation tonight. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Well, thank you, Patrice, for your good questions. (laughs) Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.